David and I were just talking about the way that people are handling the current situation. And we were talking about a specific instance and it got me onto the topic that I was talking about yesterday afternoon with some people out here. And something that I've really been keying in on is this polarization of experience that is really, really beginning to, to form, to, to almost calcify, where those who are open are loving this moment. We're hearing a lot of things like, I've never been able to do X or, oh my God, I'm really enjoying this time to put into Y. But then there's the other people who are vulnerable and afraid of those vulnerabilities. Like we're all vulnerable, but certain people allow their vulnerability to surface and ride and don't really, you know, don't temper it. And then certain people are in constant fear. It's very masculine, feminine, you know, unfortunately. Um, and we were just talking about that. And, and you know, yesterday I was, uh, I was with a husband and a wife. And the husband was the, was talking about how he's going to change his whole life. He's like, business is going to be better and all these things. And he's so excited. And he's with us out here. It's just like the opposite and constantly afraid and, you know, worried about change and worried about stasis and, and going back and forth. Um, and David and I were just talking about someone that he met who you know, what I'm hearing when I'm listening to him, I'm hearing this, this archetype of the vulnerability being like exploited by this moment. I don't know, David, what do you, like, I hear your story and I just, I just hear these archetypes. Our friend Sarah Jane said that she thought this crisis was driving everyone to become much more themselves. Totally. That's great. Where their, where their fear is, where their fears are, where their enthusiasms are, and also being forced back onto themselves. Her perception was, in the broad uh, case, it's not people saying, well, now I have this time to really consider myself and evolve and do all these various things to become more aware of how my fears function and how my little neurotic habits function. But in fact, they just burrow deeper into whatever they perceive as their identity, whether they're aware of how it manifests or not. You're just doing it in a new circumstance that's all the more extreme. Well, the volume turned up to 11. Yeah. And the habits that are comforting, especially the habits around the house that are comforting, get much more pronounced. You know, the first, mm -hmm. it just stopped this week. I was eating three times the chocolate I usually eat. He eats good chocolate, though. I yeah, he sources you. it in uh, <laughs> Jean Pierre Heaven and stuff like that. Good, good places. <laughs> but um, it's only like the last week I got a handle on it. So got a handle on the compulsiveness of it. I'm I'm addicted to eating. Yeah, I have this strange extremity where I can fast for five days, but like I talk about fasting, I talk you know both things. It's very hard for me to get anyone to relate to me on food because I can talk about fasting. And when people hear me talk about, like they think fasting is like, like someone was over for dinner last night and they were talking about how they fasted today. And I'm like, oh, well, we're eating dinner right now. What do you mean? And she's like, oh no, I just mean like between 
12 p.m and now and i'm like that's not that's not fasting that's just like you didn't like you you ate an early lunch it's just yom kippur that's all (laughs) it's not even yom kippur they're just practicing for yom kippur yeah and it's funny and the other guy at the table started talking about yom kippur and how difficult yom kippur is for him uh and you know i do it all the time but so so i'll go five days without eating and just i always drink liquids but um like I'm also addicted to food. I love eating and I think about it constantly. And I am one of those people who, yes, like I will shape my life and my days and my schedule around when I get to eat. And when I'm not eating, I think about eating. I love sweets. I love chocolate. I almost cracked open an ice cream just now before we started talking. I think I just distracted myself enough into starting the thing without it. And I'm here now. I had a slightly stressful night last night. Yeah. And in the midst of it, all I could think about was, I'm going to make a big-ass bowl of popcorn. Oh, and I popcorn. made a big-ass bowl of popcorn, got in bed at 11.15 with my book and my bowl of popcorn. And popcorn is soothing. You know, the repetitive motion yeah. of it, the very few calories that but you get to repeat the act of eating over and over and I love over. it so much. So much. And so it made me feel a lot better being in bed with my popcorn and my book. And what again, it, at the, the start of the crisis, I was eating popcorn every single night and had to consciously realize, really? yeah, that I had to cut back. I've had ups and downs. Like right now I'm down, uh, honestly, just because I started, um, I started being more open to social life and there was a market here. So, so like I've had, I've like accepted invitations to dinner with, with friends. Like we're in like a tiny, tiny place. So it's like literally like right next door. But yeah, so like I'll have the food that my that that I prepared for myself, which is like my one meal of the day, which is lean and healthy. And then like I'll go down to their place and then I'll eat like everything. And then then I'll go to sleep 20 minutes later, you know. And then and and, and then I had the market and I wanted to get everything at the market here. Like I wanted to support and I also wanted to like sample everything. So I just have so much stuff here right now and I've just been eating it because it's here. And like the last few days, I'm just, yeah, I'm just eating like whenever I can, basically. Well, <laughs> think about, think about living in New York. Yeah. You know, if you, if you have some sort of compulsive impulse, whatever it is, you can just go out and walk around the street and the base oh, of everything you see in front of you, right? Diminishes that. Yeah. And, and, and now you don't have it. Wait, wait, so, sorry, it. sorry. Say that again. I thought you were saying something else. Just that, um, to, to have all the external stimulation removed amps up the, in, the need for internally derived stimulation oh, oh, okay. and drives us more obsessively to the things that give us comfort in that way. Whereas if you can go out and see a lot of people, if you can go sit at a movie uh-huh. theater, you, you've got the, their valves, they dissipate. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When Those during New York film festival this year, uh, the, the way I, you've been there before, like they do the two weeks ahead for the press and industry. And, and it's just, it's, it's glorious. Um, and you just wake up early in the morning and you go and there's like a hundred something people and that's it. And you watch three movies a day and Walter Reed and there's breaks in between. And I was fasting during this. And I remember walking home each day past I, I would walk because I just you know it was nice that time of year it was it, it was uh, September 
And I'd walk home past all of these just like amazing little restaurants. And every single one was just like, and I'm not doing anything else, mind you. So like what you were saying, it's not like I'm going home to go do some, like I'm just watching three movies a day. And then like, like that's it. Cause this time is blocked out for New York film festival. It's a lot of time and like, you can't really get much else done. So it's not like I'm hopping between movies to like a meeting or something like that or going out at night. Cause I want to wake up in the morning. So I'm completely devoted to this film schedule and fasting. And so when I walk, I'm just, it's torturous. I'm thinking about it the whole time. And it's, it, you know, I have these two different feelings. There's this elation at my body feeling good. And then there's just the constant, I want food. The, the film festival. I'm not hungry. I just want it. Right. Right. Well, and now even more so. Yeah. We've talked about the film festival is the best time of the year. Mm-hmm. And the, those two weeks for the film festival press screenings, I always used to look Kevin. at those at the start and end of each year. Not Rosh Hashanah, yes. not January 1. I've expanded just, my year to be Venice, Quick Break in Paris, and New York Film Festival. That, that I calendar yeah. year around that, yeah. Yeah, life stops, and you just yeah. go to the Walter Reed, you stand in line with all those people you don't see except once a year. Right. And grab a bite somewhere, and then go back and stand in line again. It's just, it's epic. It's, it was much better at, the, at Alice Tully, but it's still good at Walter Reed. They do Alice Tully a couple times, like for the Scorsese film, they did it. Uh, they'll do it once, you know, here and there. Yeah. But yeah, and I mean, you don't have to stand in line. Right. True. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, there's massive. And, and you know that certain people have certain seats. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, so, yeah. I sat in the same seat every time. I had the same conversation exactly. with the same guy. We reviewed every movie together before the next right. movie, and we sat two seats away from each other because we're right. not fucking crazy, you know. <laughs> and and by the you know by the fourth or fifth day, you don't take that guy's seat. Exactly. And if right. people would come in and they would be like, it was like such a faux pas. I would be so offended because I go to everything, and there's a right. set of like probably seventy five people that go to literally every single one, and then there's like another three hundred probably that pop in and out of what they feel like, you know. Dilettantes, man. And when they fucking take, when they sit between, between me and you know the, this other film critic that I would sit. And we would talk when someone sits in one of those two seats, like I want to fucking kill him. I'm just like, like you fucking, yeah. Like who do you think you are showing up here for the, the marriage story and sitting in a, in a seat that's designated to not be occupied or sitting in someone else's seat. You fuck you fucking simpleton. Oh my God. You show up for the marriage story. The fuck community the marriage builds story. Rules. The Sorry. community builds rules and the member of the Hell communities yeah. know it. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. It, and, and what's so cool about that specific community, I mean, it's just like, it's, it's the coolest community. These are, this is film at Lincoln Center. You know, it's basically institutionally, there's, there's Cannes. There's not really even Biennale because Biennale is not like a central, like people don't go to Biennale regularly. People, all, everyone is visiting. So in Venice, Cannes has like a community of sophisticated film people and New York Film Festival has it. AFI is wonderful, but it's not quite that level. Like you go to AFI in the Man's Chinese Theater and I love the people that work on AFI, but it's just a different setting. It's not at DGA anymore. And it's like, you know, it's something else. Um, If you're in DGA, it feels different. But 
there is nothing like going to Walter Reed Theater on, you know, on, we're on 65th Street. We walk up the steps. Like, right. holy shit. You get out of the subway, you round this glorious glass pavilion, and then you walk up those steps. And it's just like, I know that anyone I encounter here is either a student who is like really, really fucking cool at Juilliard or one of these chosen, dedicated, really, 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 I don't know, cultivated people like i just i love the random conversations i end up having there everyone's weird as fuck they all have these Sorry. crazy social everybody's hang-ups. eccentric as they can be oh my god the eccentricity they're, they're is like so the badly socialized see. i don't leave yes. myself out of that terribly <laughs> socialized yes <clears throat> don't know how to comport themselves standing in line for an hour yeah yeah i'm it's sure crazy. phones now make it a lot easier but back right in the they stayed yeah. like oh my god when you would have to stand next to some of these people who making you know unintended eye contact is the equivalent of like <laughs> you know accidentally what's the film that uh, we both watched sterling hayden accidentally sh- sinks the battleship and starts the nuclear war uh sydney uh-huh. poitier that's Be- richard Be- Widmark. Bedford incident. the Bedford yes. incident yeah. it, like unintended uh eye eye contact is the bedford incident to these people <laughs> <laughs> That's the most in joke I've ever made, probably. But like, no one's gonna understand. You know, I have to see that again. And that film has has an interesting historical significance. I mean, I think it's a good picture, Uh but it's it's the first time I know of that a a black actor was cast in a role that in the book was written as white that anybody could have played, but they cast a black actor to do it. Mm. I don't think that had been done before. The character wasn't specifically black. He was just a journalist. Okay, I didn't. uh, I'd never seen that before. I was just told this is the best ending in a movie ever and watch it. And that ending, it's, holy yeah. shit. Yeah. I forget. Correct. Did you, you, you recommended it to me, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I need to watch oh it God. again now. Oh yeah, my God. So good. The interiors too. I don't know if it was artistic, like, or it was just no, because no, of the way that they did it. Like the way they're like on a, a submarine. It's a Hollywood you know? movie, but it's really yeah. good. And yeah. it's, you know, it's an anti-nuclear movie at a time when that was a relatively new notion. What is it, like 65 or something, 63? Yeah, it's black and white, so it's gotta be, you know, front half yeah. of that. Uh, yeah, it's and, cool. Uh, Widmark is great. Yeah. I always, uh, my grandma- 65. Like, 65, yeah, you, you were right. My grandma dated him. James B. Harris made it. Okay. You know, Kubrick's um, um, produced The Killing, Paths of Glory, Lolita. Oh, and wow. I think he co-wrote. Um, yeah, uh, writer. He he's uncredited co-writer of Alita, but he worked with Kubrick a lot. And then uh, I thought he had a, a part in Doctor. I thought he had something to do with Doctor Strange too. But apparently. I was watching Shining backwards and forwards just now, right before talking to you. Uh, Streamcast. The Shining. Yeah, the shine. You know how they did the flip. Yeah, but I've been thing? talking about the shining. Yeah, that's been I'll forward you, or when I when we're done, I'll forward you the uh, you know, stream slate, like like screen slate. Uh, are you left New York? Yeah, so it's a New York yeah. based like what's playing in New York today, um, and uh, it's been running forever. Here. Maybe we have it here. I wish we did. Uh, I mean, LA Film Forum kind of kind of does it, but um. It's Screen Slate, and now they renamed it Stream Slate because of the the, the Corona. Um, but yeah, they did a they do they do they do like a one page blurb on a on a special film that day, 
And it's always just really, really good. It's super intelligent. And today was about the backwards and forwards uh, shining uh, edit, I guess. And the the editor of, of Streamslate used to work at Spectacle Theater in New York and actually worked on this. And there's been a few versions and they streamed the 3D version. And it's a really good little piece because it tracks all the different versions of it because there's a lot that you can find. There's like four. And it, it gives the history of all of it and who did what. And then it tells you like, so there's like two sites that you can go on right now and you could really experience it pretty vividly. And these are different versions of The Shining? What, what are these? So there's, okay. Do you remember that uh, Room 237 documentary? That like yeah, analyzed. Okay, but yeah. you know it exists. It's, it's a film, you know, they, they take yeah, three different- Yeah, conspiracy theories around yes. The Shining. So that spawned out of, and I might be butchering this story. I don't, it's not important. It's the, the point of the story remains, but there was this uh, internet thing, called the mastermind, no, uh, no vowels. And he just went into, it was like hundreds of pages on the shining. And one of the quotes in that was the shining is a film meant to be watched backwards and forwards someone took that literally and did it and it's really cool and i can say i can send you all of the you mean backwards from beginning to from end to beginning so what they do the is film? they superimpose it over its itself so they take they, they they take one you know they laid one on the timeline in final cut and then they reversed another and shifted the opacity so you have the film playing forwards you know, at 100% and you have the film playing backwards overlaid at like 50% and then, but they edited the opacity so that it was clear on every shot and you get some crazy frames like, like Jack Nicholson, his credit is over his photograph, things like that. Um, you know, the Lloyd says like, how you doing when he's doing the, uh, when he's with the woman, um, it's, there's a lot the, the Danny's silent scream is over a real scream. And so there's the soundtrack not overlap, but dialogue doesn't overlap this the gaps Correct. are where they can be. They do the I'm forwards at my, dialogue. My site now. They do all the sign here. I mean let me just I'm looking at now K D twelve, the back the shining forwards yes. and backwards. Yeah. Okay. This so looks I'm gonna watching. forward you the whole thing though, because it, there's like okay. just so much more to read. Um or you know what? I don't know if I can because I don't want to fuck up my Wi-Fi. But look okay, up we'll Stream Slate. Just, just, just look at Stream Slate while you're talking to me if you want. Um, and it's in there right now, and all the links are in there. Uh, it's a very cool project, and and just you know for. I think it's 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 you know, I don't think Kubrick really edited the film to do that. I think it's just. It happens that way because, like the bookend is um, Scatman Crothers in the middle. Yeah, where he gets he's in the Florida hotel room and it's like it just I, I think it's more just like it makes sense that the film bookends that way. And then there's some beautiful moments that are made of it because the film is made up of incredible tableaus and you put one incredible tableau over another and like a bunch of them are going to line up and, you know, out of two hours, a bunch of them are going to line up and be really incredible. I guarantee 
Kubrick did think of a couple of those, but like not, but they're mirrors of each other narratively and, and formally. I don't think he wanted people to, I don't think he envisioned people doing this project, but it's a very cool thing to think about. And, and the hallucinatory effect of watching it is powerful. It's a powerful okay. way to watch it. It's, it's I'm cool. looking at stills from it now. And the the stills are great. are great. Yeah. And, and you can just scroll through those and like, look at the, you know, look at five in the front, five in the middle, five in the end. And, uh, and here's where, where he had the kid ass cat, Scatman Crothers. Is there something bad here? Yes. And, and what you also see in that picture is Jack Nicholson looking just as fiendish and demonic as possible. Right. There's a lot, like, there's a bunch of those. And it's like, you know, I think it's just the magic of film is what, kind of you know you you can conspiracy theory the whole thing but like i think it's just the magic of a really really incredible film where like there's a hundred glorious moments you know and you could mix and match them and they matched like a bunch of them match because they're all glorious you just take glorious moment and other glorious moments and like yeah they work well together but i think it's as simple as that and it's just really beautiful like i don't think 2001 would work the same way because it's episodic. I, no, I don't yeah. think so. Yeah. But they talk about it a little bit in that site that you're on right now. I saw 2001 and 70 millimeter projected, not uh, digital. It's the, the big, it's the best great, the arc viewing here. experience in the world, period. And, and, you know, I'd seen it. I saw it at the Zigfield years ago. And, yeah. But this time, it's, it's a purely cinematic experience. Yeah. Uh, it has to be big. And the other thing I saw this time is the genius of the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. The, the silent ambient space sound, the way he deals with the volume of how he's gonna turn up the ambience high and low, that the whole soundtrack is the sort of 20th century composition yeah. that he loves so much that dominates the Shining soundtrack, that he's made this avant-garde soundtrack. You could listen to the whole soundtrack of dialogue, music, ambience, right. that's as intricately and purposefully edited as the visuals. You should just, really go to Museum of Moving Image that has yeah. the exhibit, you know, whenever the world reopens. They have a shining, they have a 2001 exhibit? Yeah, they played it in 70 millimeter. I went to the opening night. They had some of the people, they had the guy who, who did the monkeys uh, there acting, you know, like talking us through that whole, that whole part. And I mean, the exhibition is like, you know, you spend three hours there. It's really good, dense, a lot. I've seen it so often on the small screen that, seeing it big again, let me see how carefully he frames. Mm-hmm. And again, how purposefully he frames. They're not just like depictive. Every one of his compositions has a narrative point, you know, a character point, a narrative point. It's just such a beautifully composed piece. And I, I don't want to watch it small any... ever again. Me neither. There's nothing like it. I've, okay. I've like split my, you know, my favorite list into two now because of that. <laughs> and I say that like, <laughs> the greatest cinematic viewing experience of all time is 2001. I don't call it like my favorite, like my favorite movie is last year at Marion bed, which I know you don't, you are not as, as in on as I am. But, uh, and then I have my like Mauvais song and, uh, wild at heart, which are like my movies. Um, but the viewing experience goes to 2001. And have we, have we talked about my theory about the end of 2001? Not sure, but let's talk about it. Okay. I'm very proud of this insight. And it's an (laughs) insight I had at two in the morning on a New Year's Eve when I got home late and TCM was showing 2001 
2001 shows on TCM. Wow. And, and I got in bed to watch it at really like two in the morning on January 1. And it gets to the end and the closing credits begin and the Blue Danube is playing. And the closing credits for a special effects movie, they're like two minutes long. It's really shocking the difference between credits then and now. Oh, really funny. But the song keeps playing on a black screen. The song is six and a half minutes long. Uh-huh. So there's four and a half minutes of Black Leader with Blue Danube under. Now, given that Kubrick is the most purposeful director ever, and given that he's also the producer of all his films, and it cost extra money to make all these prints with four and a half extra minutes, I was trying to puzzle out why he would do that, why he would want people to sit in the theater in the dark and listen to the Blue Danube. This is what I came up with. That, that, that the Blue Danube under the closing credits is, his, is Kubrick telling us what that film is about. And the film is about two things. There's only art and the void, and only art holds back the void. That everything he's shown is proceeding. Technology doesn't mean a thing. Human beings have not evolved since they were using bones to kill other animals. What's the one thing that matters? Art. Making stuff. Making stuff. There's blackness. And there's art. That's it. Hmm. I mean, I'll you know that's myself. very much my philosophy. I'll pat myself on the back for that one. Good. Yeah, I was it like another part of this dinner conversation last night was funny that it come. You know, we were, this kid was talking about, and he's a kid. He's twenty years old. Um, was talking about black holes and stuff, and how he's interested in it, and like, what about the purpose, and what about the meaning of the universe, and what about all the stuff we don't know about, and all this. And I'm like, ah. I don't like what, what, it, what about it? Like, you know, what are you talking about? Like if you lay out ahead of me, like that, Hey, I can go pursue this and figure out the, whatever you call, you know, this word that you use purpose, like, sure, I'll go do it. But like, that's not before me right now. That's that option is not there. So like, just exclaim, it's not that I care less about the black hole than you do. It's just like, it's not a thing. Like we're not equipped as a, as a civilization and especially not like me personally to go understand this thing. So I focus on other things because I think that like life is just, you know, we make stuff, we do stuff and we make stuff and that's it. And we feel what we feel from that. And we build our universe through that and that's it. So if like the black hole becomes part of it, like cool. And we can start to understand the black hole and it expands our horizons like cool but like i i equated it i went back to like yo there was like a shaman in the indian in the native you know native indian tribe when like columbus's ships were on the shore and he saw them but no one else did and they thought it was magic but it was really just like they their thinking hadn't evolved to the point of like comprehending gigantic ships the size of mountains like you you hearken me to one of my favorite historical stories uh-huh. which is the conquistador Cabeza de Vaca. Okay. And Cabeza de Vaca shipwrecked. I'm in Mexico right now. Yeah, Cabeza de Vaca shipwrecked on the coast with 400 men. And then six years later, one of uh, Coronado's expeditions Where found him. No, no, Coronado. Found him and four men in southern Arizona. And they had wandered from where they shipwrecked on the coast and died one by one until they were found in, in this place where the conquistadors from Mexico had, were moving north and found. Mm-hmm. And 
the book of his adventure is one of the oldest continuously in print books in the world. But the fantastic, and there's a great avant-garde film about it called Cabeza de Vaca. Oh, wow. And the film takes the view, this is germane to what you're saying, that everything he saw appeared as a hallucination or witchcraft or un unearthly and unworldly. It's, it's the Clark, it's the Arthur he, C. Clark quote. Because he had no context for anything. Uh -huh. He'd never seen anything like what the new world was like. Right. He, he was only in native culture. He was in lands to which there were no equivalent, topography to which there was no equivalent for him. Yeah. And so he spent six years trying to stay alive, essentially in a hallucination every moment. Six where years he could long. not figure out what he was seeing. He had no uh -huh. clues, no context, no nothing to suss what he saw. And his descriptions of what he saw in, in the book bear it out. And you'll really like the movie Cabeza de Vaca. You'll like uh -huh. it a lot. Yeah, the, the quote that I was invoking when I was talking to this kid is, is you know, it's magic until it's science. Uh, that's the, the, the rule, the Arthur C. Clarke rule. From, you know, it's, it's there at the exhibition for 2001. Well, the we flip don't... of that, sorry. sorry. No, go ahead. The flip of that is what they say in the Church of the Subgenius, which is everything you know is wrong. Like 20 years ago, everything they said about black holes has yeah. nothing to do with what they say about black holes now. Right. So that it is all magical thinking still. Yeah. I, I like applying that. It, it means, I think it, I think it lends power to things. It lends possibility to what we make, what we do. I think it gives, you know, Kubrick, for his intention, whatever. It creates that je ne sais quoi. It's where, that's where that lives. All these things that he does, that all these decisions that he makes that probably never shares with anyone. I don't Even think Even when his films don't work, yeah. you still feel his will. You just exactly, feel the, yeah. The palpableness of his will. You know, like with Tarkovsky, you feel his spirit. You feel that questing spirit in the camera. You don't mm. so much feel Tarkovsky's will, but you feel his spiritual aspect. As the camera moves, you feel him reaching through the world, trying to discern, trying to perceive. With Kubrick, you just, you feel that artist's will every second, every cut, every way the camera moves, everything everybody does. I think if, you, if he worries about answering the questions, he doesn't do, he doesn't do that. I don't think he worries about answering the questions. I think he simply makes what he's capable of making. And it is whatever questions and answers. Well, he is a big front brain guy, you know, that you've seen the book on his Napoleon movie. No. There's like a book, I know it's it thousand is. pages yeah. of yeah. coffee table book of, of, you know, the decades notes of notes and, stuff, and preparations yeah. and sketches of every soldier's uniform and every nation's uniform and what they ate and what they drank and how they ate and just that he researched it so much he couldn't make the movie. And so that <laughs> his love of the front brain of research of the, the, the illusion of if you know everything, then you move forward rather than the, the movie from the viscera, he always moved from the front of the brain. And sometimes it works beautifully for him and sometimes it's a limitation. Yeah, he's got, he, there's really no one else with his career. 
where he made like every single movie was like a whole new universe. And yes, that's, that's only true. that's all he did. He just did it a few times and that was it. It's it's funny, up until um and including a thin red line, you would say that about Malik. And then his movies after that have been so yeah, fundamentally disappointing that you, you're forced to think, well, are these just all tropes of his then? He didn't really make a universe. He just had tropes we weren't down with. And now that we're down with his tropes, his movies aren't making universes. Yeah, I mean, watching um, Malik is a tough watch because uh, the, the recent one, I saw it. Uh, I don't think it's come out yet, but the one that won... Did it win Cannes or did it just... No, it didn't win Cannes. It just made the most money at Cannes. Got sold for the most money, I guess. Um, About the Austrian conscientious objector? Right. I forget what it's I called. I hated that movie so much. Yeah, but it's got all this just incredible stuff in it. And then it's it just got a, all... Yeah, you know. You know, the, the Dottis and Surrealists said of the Impressionists, I feel like they're sending me postcards. Okay. I don't want to look at postcards. And that's my view of, of that movie. It's that in the midst of this absolute moral bankruptcy, Malik is sending us postcards, the beautiful Alps, the beautiful people, the beautiful cows, the beautiful that's, green grass. Yeah, like you can't leave that movie with any, there's nothing that you leave that movie with other than like the glorious motorcycle shots and stuff. Yeah. Like It's just, it's yeah. cool. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But like, man, you leave that movie with just like, I need to go eat now and like, replenish myself you know it's just it's just there's nothing do soaked grass barefoot yeah there's just nothing to it like tree of life is imbued i think it's the only one like like new world and tree of life new world was like the 1.0 of of this stuff and then tree of life was the you know turned up to 11 of this stuff and then everything else is just like applying it to another scenario and it's it's just it's valueless. It's just, yeah, it's, it's beautiful, it's but beautiful it's just like, it's do I really need, you know, just watch tree of life and a new world again. N not that a new world is any kind of masterpiece, but just formally. Well, I like it a lot, but yes. But yeah. You watch, I mean, you watch, I, it was a tough watch, but I respected it so much and I got things out of it. I awakened things, you know, but watching the new ones, it's like nothing's awakened. It's just like more it's just yeah. doing it again. Yeah. Like thin red line. We've talked about this. You know, it's a $70 million art movie as a war film. Yeah. But what he does in it that's so extraordinary is he cuts from each character's psychological state to the next character's psychological state. That's what's driving the cuts. He expected an audience to understand it, and we do. But then when he pulls that same cutting in these stories that are just have no, have no depth at all, then it's just, it's just trophy, just fancy cutting. Yeah. I've tried to get into the other films, but... I haven't been able to get through any. Have you of watched the music one, the one set in Austin? Song to song, I've started it and <sighs> I've gone, you know, I've gone chunks into it a few times. But I just like, I'm watching Whichever. it and I'm just like, do I care to watch this? Like, I know all these people, and it's like, I don't know the house scene. I really was like out. It just felt like Fassbender. I think plays the record executive, right? Yeah, who yeah. wears the leather jacket, and I was like. Yo, like, I don't can... remember which Mara was in it, but whichever one it is, she's supposed to be a songwriter. And they're shot the from stage holding a guitar like she has never held a guitar before. Yeah, like, Fassbender is not a record executive. Like, 
it's goofy as fuck. Like Gosling is fine because Gosling just like steps into this, you know, this thing. Gosling is just, yeah, I don't think you like him the way that I like him, but right? You're not. Oh, I do like him. I thought oh, okay. he's amazing in Drive. Drive opened my mm-hmm. eyes and I, li- I like I watched good The in- Driver, by the way, this week. The original. Yeah. And? Uh, it's remarkable in its starkness. It, you know, it's a, it's a light watch for me. Yeah. In 2020, given I've seen, I think I've seen it in the past. I'm pretty sure. Uh, like I've seen, you know, every Walter Hill, everything, you know, multiple times probably. And I've seen, you know, the like I've seen the, I've seen where the bedrock, like Walter Hill created the bedrock with the driver, and then you know other people made these other things like thief you know so yeah like thief is I mean, just it's if just you more love cars yeah driver has another level that pickup truck is fantastic the the driving scenes are great yeah they're great it's the, the film is just so what makes it so great is what also makes it really light today because we've been given so much it's so stark it's just so minimalist and it's just directly to the point we are only given things like isabella johnny like nobody has ever used her or or lack thereof you know like not used her in that way like all we got was her eyes twice and that is really all that mattered everything else in between was just like you know she was she was just kind of there but it wasn't important we just got two looks you know, the, the the first look and the last look. And then, like, he kept her in the movie. Like, she didn't really have to be there. All of her, like, the whole point was just two looks. The best and take he, on the driver. accomplished that. The best take on the driver I ever got was from a British film critic who told me this when I had not yet heard of Jean-Pierre Melville. Uh-huh. He said, the driver is a very, 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 very stupid attempt to make a Jean-Pierre Melville film. It's, it's, yeah, it's so minimalist and it's so, it's so just to the point, but yeah, Melville, I I get more out of today. Well, sure. Melville gets richer and richer as time goes on. Yeah. Like it's stark also. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a good comparison. Uh, It's funny because the driver is unlike, you know, most Walter Hill movies, he does create this universe, you know, he, 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 we like I also watched Streets of Fire recently, which is obviously a uh, that's an extreme example of him creating a ridiculous universe. But there's other movies that like, well, the Warriors I, creates a universe. Yeah. Um, so having the guy who did the Warriors, which is you know similarly like a chase movie, you know, um, the driver is so he they, like everything is kind of just like. I don't know. Like, is it important that Bruce Dern's meeting scenes are where they are in the bar? Like, could they, they could be anywhere, you know, (laughs) like everything can just be anything in that movie. It's all so minimalist. Yeah. Have Have you read the screenplay? No. Because the screenplay is, the screenplay is much better than the film. Even as much as I love the film, it's so hard boiled, so minimalist and has such a great cadence which the film also does. One thing that makes the film so watchable is the cadence of it's great. And the has cadence Gosling of the ever chasing... commented on Ryan O'Neill? Have you ever seen has? him? 
has Ryan Gosling ever commented on Ryan O'Neill? I don't know. Because he's obvious. I mean, it's just, it's, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> it's the performance. The 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 collar is replaced by a signature, you know, a Korean signature jacket. Like, yeah, that's it. That's the yeah, whole. Yeah, he has the same physical language. Yes, he moves similarly. Yeah, it's it's a it's a cool movie. I mean, I'll take Thief any day over The Driver, though. Well, I think Thief is a masterpiece. I mean, yeah, a, a true masterpiece. A, and Thief, Thief is an Thief, inter- yeah. uh, The Driver is an interesting genre exercise. Mm-hmm. But Thief is a really is a masterful film. Yeah. Rewards so many except for one thing. It has the worst possible song at the very end. What is it? I don't remember. I don't even know. It's some horrible eighties song and he kept such a lid on the estate. I mean we're talking about the dude who did Miami Vice, you know? So yeah. of course it, it was it, a bad song. <laughs> it, it's but the rest of the music and the soundtrack is really good. It's Tangerine yeah. Dream, right? Oh right. Oh yeah. Isn't it? I think it is. I don't remember. That makes and, sense, uh, though. I'm thinking about it, and that makes sense, yeah, with yeah. those, like, emotional, like, longing moments, and, yeah. And the other film that's really the precursor to Thief is Sorcerer, which is Tangerine Dream. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Friedkin's remake of Wages of Fear. Yes, yes. And Sorcerer is also a great film, really holds up. I love but Sorcerer. you can see much of Sorcerer in, in Thief. Yeah, the driver, but you love the driver. The driver is something that you continue to talk about because of the cars. I love cars. Yeah. I, you know, I grew up in a car culture. I love cars. I love the idea of, quote, cool, of that of the two-lane blacktop idea of cool with your car. And Ryan O'Neill totally incarnates that, like, 60s California idea of how you're supposed to be cool vis-a-vis your car. I think of it as a concept that born and raised Manhattanites like, cannot grok. They're always looking at it from the outside in, but I was raised where hot rods really were important. They were the first aesthetic choices I ever saw were in hot rods. Man, hot rods. Hot rods and custom cars, so it meant a lot to me. And that truck that Ryan O'Neill has, that red pickup with the white mag wheels, that when he revs the engine, the whole truck just kind of quivers. Yeah. That is like such an image of that era of like what your car is supposed to be and do. So we were talking about this was this was a note that we were going back and forth on and okay. we were talking about food earlier and I was thinking you know the my dinner with Andre idea um I watched it I've seen my dinner with Andre Louis Mall Wallace Shawn Andre Benjamin um I've seen it in the past but I don't know I never thought about this ending where so the whole film if you don't know what my dinner with Andre is is basically an opening monologue from Wallace Shawn talking about how he's, you know, a pseudo like mediocre, uh, poor New York city theater and film actor, uh, in what was the seventies or eighties? What was it? it Late seventies, early eighties, something like that, you know? And, um, he's basically, he's playing himself. Like he went to Dalton, he went to my school. And he talks about this theater director, Andre It was Benjamin. 80s. I saw its premiere at Telluride, and that was in the early okay. 80s. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, and he, uh, so he's narrating, like, his day, and he's been avoiding this dinner with this guy, Andre, who is a theater, a theater director that has directed him in the past, but kind of disappeared from the face of the earth and gone off into all these, you know, 
we don't know places like Africa and, and retreats and meditation and all this crazy stuff when it wasn't quite as uh, prevalent as we understand it. No, it's remarkably prescient because the things he describes, the meditation rituals, the performance rituals, all the ways of escaping his own personality, all the avant-garde theater stuff, it's become so part of the conversation now. Yeah, now everyone. But then it was new to hear all of those things. Like now you meet someone, and within you know five questions, you might ask, "What's your meditation practice?" Or, "Do you want to do yoga with me tomorrow morning?" I have a teacher coming over to my, you know, blah blah blah. <laughs> um, but at this time, it wasn't. And Andre Bench, so they end up having this dinner, and the whole, you know, the 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 evolution of the film is that Wallace Shawn goes from this very closed off, like I'm. He, he considers everything that Andre Benjamin must have been doing to be out of terrible things happening to him. Something terrible. He says it. Something terrible must have happened to him to drive him to these habits, behaviors, explorations, what have you. Um, and over the and then and then Andre Benjamin shows up, or Wallace Shawn shows up. It's a super fancy restaurant. Andre Benjamin shows up in like a really nice sweater. He's just like looking good, you know. And Wallace Shawn looks like shit. And he just is like full of joie de vivre and they get into conversation and he tells them all these stories and he, the, the movie is 90 minutes and it's just the dinner. And the stories are just like Andre Benjamin is like both in a humble way, like really power, like powerful from all of these experiences. And then uh, at the end of the film, uh, Wallace Shawn goes back into narration and he talks about how I see our conversation has run past all the other uh, diners and everyone has left. And uh, what surprised me was Andre insisted on paying. And as then this is the part that I was wanting to talk to David about as he's narrating, we're watching the check be delivered and paid and the waiter gives this look to Wallace Shawn and Wallace Shawn glances up noticing as if like sixth sense kind of feeling like, you know, someone's looking at you and the waiter looks away and back at Andre as if caught. And it's yes. Yeah, so, so the last thing that I'll say before I like pass the baton, cause I feel like you're going to understand this better than I do is, is, you know, this is a very simple film made by a filmmaker who has the kind of thought process of, of like a Kubrick, you know, he has made very, very intricately like precise formal exercise films. He's made documentaries and narrative Louis Mall and, and like the camera moves like the lovers, you know, the camera moves along the building along the lines in the in the frame and the lines bring the character to his inexorable destination which is her and you know like he's very formally specific and dinner with andre is this film that the formality is so simple where it's just you know there's like a few camera angles and they talk for the whole time and then in the end this is the one shot really that like he's speaking with camera Shot, reverse shot, look, other look, look somewhere else, camera. And it just, it, it, it knocked my socks off seeing his one formal expression in the entire 90 minutes be that. 
and I wanted to ask you what you make of it. One thing that happens through the whole film is they're talking, the two of them are talking. And, and when I saw it at Telluride, Mall after the film talked about how Wallace Shawn was the genius of reaction shots, because throughout the film, he intercuts Andre Gregory's monologues with these um, reaction shots of Sean, where he's never heard anything like yeah. what Gregory's saying. And some of it he thinks is horseshit, and some of it moves him deeply. And like, there's a particular shot I remember where he's trying to eat peas on his fork, and he's trying to get his mouth down to this fork full of peas while Andre's talking. But it just shows what a, an underrated actor Sean is, and, and how expressive an actor he can be. Yeah. And also throughout, they use this, this waiter, and the waiter is, you know, he's a, he's a white-haired eminence. He has a very sharp face and a, a big head of white hair. He looks like he's in Last Year at Marion Bad. Like, he looks like X from Last Year at Marion Bad. He's got yeah. that kind of chisel, like, ten, like 15 years older than X in Last Year at Marion Bad. He's one of those kind of guys. And he's Ghastly. Blank. Boris Karloff almost. Yeah, and he's, but he has great dignity and he has great presence. Oh, yeah. Oh, he's the man. Yeah. And when they cut to him uh, serving and managing the serving, he's quite blank. This is what really separates that last shot from all the cutaways to him before. Right. He's quite blank. He's the Zen master doing the job. You know, he's the guy who effortlessly makes the wine appear just when it should and takes your fork away or directs someone to take your fork away at just the right moment. It's his world. But that last shot, that tiny, tiny glance he gives Sean is censorious. And Sean doesn't know why, and it just pierces him in some deep way. Like, it's the guy looking at him it's like, funny, as it's you every say, social Sean, anxiety. I'm Sean, and Wallace, Sean is Sean. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's every social anxiety incarnate. And yes. you see it in Sean's reaction shot, because Sean is thinking all these things simultaneously. Does he think I'm not good enough for this restaurant? Yes. Because it's a very high-end restaurant. Does he think I should have paid? Does he think we're on a date? It's like all these anxieties just rise and surface all right out with that one little shot. And it goes to, if you've read Sean's other plays, it goes to where, to, to a theme that runs through all his other plays, which is how difficult it is to separate ourselves from all these multiple threads of social insecurities to find out what we actually feel and want. And here he's had this profound enlightening dinner, which he, the code of the film is he's riding home in the cab and we hear his narration talking about how much he loves New York and every building has a memory and how much he enjoyed the dinner. And he's had one of those New York nights where out of the blue, a conversation changes your perspective, but then roots you very strongly back in where you are and makes you savor everything around you. Yeah. And even in the face of that, that one glance from the waiter that maybe was censorious, maybe not. We don't know what the waiter's thinking. It undoes him. It's just brilliant. Yeah, and it's and also it's, interesting, it was interesting that after a film in which, you know, like the densest script ever written, it's just page after page of endless dialogue. They're just talking and they're, they're not my, ain't the driver. I mean, they're talking in not paragraphs, but pages. And, and then, then everything to turn on the silent shot was also formally brilliant. Yeah, I see so much in it. Like I grew up where Wallace Shawn grew up. We went to the same, he's obviously, he's like much, much older than me, but he went to my school. And so just everything he says in that, knowing that it is, it is his, you know, it's him. Like I res it resonates so much with me because I've been to those places. 
I've gotten those glances. You know, I dread, I put my fucking hair up to the side in a scrunchie, like, you know, and I, I'm in Correas and like this fancy place here. And like someone asked me, yeah, the first, t- they, the first thing that I did, the first like lunch that I went to with people, like someone asked me like why I, ha- why I look the way I look. And I, she was, she was like, Oh, just like, I don't know. Like, why do you have your hair? like that why do you have your beard like that and I was like sorry like what What? like (laughs) and and what she means is like you're a clown why are you you know are you a clown because like you're paid to be a clown or is it a com you know what why are you a clown (laughs) and and she won't say that but that's what she means she's like what where's the joke I don't understand the joke clearly you're making a joke but what is the joke can you tell me what the joke is and that makes me feel small but uh but at least you saw it was a joke it's not a joke <laughs> what <laughs> i always took it as your commentary on everybody else who doesn't do it it's not that deep i'm not thinking <laughs> it's not like that it's just like i I make all these decisions very formally, (laughs) very functionally. Like I wear, I can explain all of them. They all have like tangible, like it's, it's out of comfort. Usually it's out of like interacting with the world. It's, it's, it's three things. It's comfort. It's how it's, it's being cognizant of how I, and it's practicality functionality. Like literally I wear the tie around my waist instead of a belt one of the reasons is to touch things with it because I don't want to touch doorknobs and stuff like that when I don't have to. So that's what I use. Um, it's also an aesthetic choice where my hair goes to that side and I continue the circle that the line creates. I always took it as another way also, which is, um, do you know Carl Bodmer, the painter Carl Bodmer? Don't think so. I think he, he went west in the 1840s when very, very few white men had been, had been West okay. and painted Native Americans. His paintings are in, in the Met, and I always thought he was the greatest painter of Native Americans and Western landscapes. And I'm very interested in people who saw things before anybody else. And he, like Cabeza Ivaca, had no context for painting like the Mandans. And his cool. painting of the of Mandans are very famous, the Mandan Buffalo Mandans. And he captures the, the um, Native American style of dressing, which is that everything everyone wore had a mythological significance that was particular to them only. And it was a language which everyone in their tribe understood and everyone in every other tribe understood. If they had you know, a, a beaver tail ornament, a certain be- beads in a certain place, a buffalo horns on their, on their hats, for lack of a better word, everything carried a mythical message. Everything was a self-description announced to the world without words. And if you could figure it out, swell. If you couldn't, equally swell, because they weren't doing it for you. They were doing it um, as their own expression of identity. So that's how I always took your style. I mean, partially, most of the decisions are all made, you know, very simply, very... um, Formally, like I put my hair in a scrunchie for the first time because I um, 
making tea uh, because I had grown my hair because a girlfriend I broke up with, I, one of the things we said was like, we were like trying to, you know, see if we could get back together kind of thing. And I didn't cut my hair until we did that. That was the, that was like the sort of dedication that I made. And then I needed to do something with my hair that was growing longer and longer. And I didn't know how to treat long hair. I had never had it before. And I eventually found that scrunchies were way healthier for curly hair. Cause what I was doing was I would put like a hair tie in and it would drown. Sorry. It would, it would dry out uh, the ends, you know, and it would fuck up my hair and the scrunchies are much healthier. Um, That's where it came from. And I needed to, you know, put my hair up at times. I was DJing and stuff. I didn't want my hair down. It was annoying. Uh, It would touch my neck and it would make me sweat. And I didn't like that. So I needed to put my hair up and I started using scrunchies and then it became a thing. But that's, uh, it's, it was, it was like, you know, as simple as that. Where's my tea stuff? Where's your tea stuff, man? I have this cup that I use and I had people over last night and I don't know where it is. The fuck? What the fuck? Oh, this is a disaster. Yeah, this is tea verite. My God. All right, you know what I'll do? I'll have an ice cream instead, and then I'll have tea after when I can figure it out. Good call. Um, what kind of ice cream? I'm going to look. I think I'm going to have a, a white chocolate. Um, I've been eating this uh, Jenny's No Dairy Texas Flake, I think they call it, which is a coconut milk-based uh, cho- multiple chocolate flavors, and it's 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 very difficult not to eat a pint at a time. I know. I go, I binge, but Magnum bars keep me from binging. What is a Magnum bar? All right, it's it's just like a it's a European ice cream bar. Like oh, it's ice cream. Okay, oh, right, because the, they come in a portion too big to binge on. You can just eat that one bar. Yeah, exactly. Rather than having the whole pint in front of you with a spoon. That's yeah, right. that's good. That's a good idea. So I'm yeah. having that right now. It's just this. It's simple, small. Nice view. Oh, wow. Oh, this is where I live, yeah. That's my house. Man. That's my water. Look at that bar. Never mind the oh. view. Look at that ice cream bar. Oh yeah. Um what was what did people say? So you were at the premiere for my dinner with Andre. What was that like? Did they know? Well, you it was know nobody had had. Yeah, nobody had seen a movie like that, right. because the the closest thing, in a funny way, the closest thing to a movie like that, were the Andy Warhol movies, um, where people just sat around and talked. Um, I can't believe I'm blanking on the name of it because it's one of my favorite films. The black and white Warhol film that's meant to be projected in four screens at the same time, and the dialogue moves from screen to screen. I've seen it. I forget which one. Maybe I forget we what saw all the it in Moma are. together because Moma had a yeah, beautiful print of it. It's the only time I've seen it when it was projected as it's supposed to be, with with. Um, um, yeah, I'm pretty sure I four did projectors, actually. four films going, and shot you know, like backwards and forwards shining where action takes place in one frame that's silent. And then there's dialogue in another frame, a quadrant, I should say. And then, so you had these Warhol movies that are just all lageria, just people pouring out anything they're thinking of. Yeah. Now I don't know much about theater, but my, my assumption was always that if you were, if you were aware of things going on in theater, 
maybe this wouldn't have been so shocking. But to see people talk in that granular detail for that long and to have things that were deliberate monologues, but to know too that it wasn't, it wasn't written as a stage play, it was written as a screenplay. Never seen anything like it. Oh, what I was gonna finish my thought was, the Warhol movies, the, the Lageria was always content free. It was always people talking about themselves. You didn't expect to get any insights from it. You took it as- It was born out of his, like, his morning tapes and stuff, right? Like yeah, the phone calls yeah. he made, yeah. Yeah, it was just like, let them go. Everybody's on speed, let them round it. And every now and then, someone would say something worthwhile. But at my dinner with Andre, every story totally Andre not like that. Every tells word. Mm -hmm. is compelling. Every word is compelling. Every story is compelling. And the first time I saw it, I have to say at the premiere, I thought, this is just wanking. And then maybe three years later, I, I saw it again and realized I was completely wrong. Hmm. That, and, the, and the simplicity of the shooting you were describing, I think tended to make me find it wanky. But the fact is, it's a super low budget movie. He had no dub. And they shot it in one location over very, very few days with them just pouring out these takes. And the other thing that's very interesting about it is that it really depicts a very specific class. It, it depicts the creative class in New York, where, whether you have money or don't. And Wallace Shawn says that, that classic line that's true for 99% you know, of creative people, where he said, you know, when I was growing up, all I thought about was art and beauty. And now all I think about is money. Oh my God, what a line, yeah. And he also says, I can't remember if he said it in the writing, I think it's in my, in my dinner with Andre, but he says, the hardest part of writing is Xeroxing. Mm -hmm. You know, and he meant the hardest I part totally of writing is all the logistics, right? Yeah, yeah, and it was just such a brilliant line. And what's, what's very interesting about the structure of that film is, I remember my impressions of Andre Gregory's Incredible Tales and Gregory talks, I would say, for 80% of the film and Sean for 20. But I remember what Sean says so clearly, that, that his, his lines are so great. Yeah. And, and the other thing I love so much about that movie is that they're balancing the two of them as Sean depicts himself as fundamentally a rationalist, a guy who believes in a rational universe, two plus two equals four, believes in process, believes in going about things in a certain way. And Gregory is depicted as someone who has chucked all that stuff behind, but quite interestingly, not in the name of drugs. He is not a psychedelicist. He hasn't had these experiences because he took hallucinogens and went and did something. The experiences them themselves were hallucinogenic and in some profound way, life and character change. And so that uh, Sean stands in for the audience, basically going, golly, Holy shit, you did? And that's also a brilliant piece of screenwriting. Sean doesn't treat Gregory's stories as normal, but he treats the idea that the creative classes meet in these beautiful, elegant places and they talk about ideas. And this is one reason I love that um, um, Olivier Assayas film, Cloud with Sils Maria, so much. That, uh, because it's really just about creative people talking about ideas and how that the performance is one thing, but what really drives a creative life is creatives getting together and thrashing out what the ideas in the art are. That that's like life, breath, everything. 
And that's the only film since My Dinner with Audrey where I've seen it done as well as convincingly, passionately, all that stuff. What are the clouds, the snake clouds? What do they mean? Well, I, I took it as simply that's the, that is the unexplainable nat um, natural phenomenon that they come there to see. But then they're not there to see it. Their, their neurotic issues make them run away and they don't chill long enough to see this beautiful thing. And also, it's a really cool visual. So I'm not so that's sure- That's why I asked, like, is it, yeah. Like, I'm is it sure there the, beyond the visual? Yeah, I'm not sure the clouds carry that much thematic weight, unless it's this idea of befogged thinking coming in and shrouding all the natural beauty, but that's a stretch to get to there. That was not an instinctive hit. Yeah, I don't know if Olivier Assayas thinks about it that way. I'm not sure. I go I back and either, forth with him. Yeah. Sometimes he seems like a filmmaker who, you know, like the concept for the film could have come up in a few minutes. Yes. And I would totally believe it. There's films that he's made that I feel extremely thought out and worldly. And then there's films that he makes that I think are just like, put a few elements together that are the key things, the key reasons why the film exists. And then fill in the rest. Like I think that, you know, nonfiction is one of those. Like I think that film was made 10 years too late. Yeah, and it was. I'm just like, I don't know why it exists. And the answer that I can come up with is because all those people were willing to team up. And, well, the the you know. funny thing about him is that, um, I always say that it's funny how most avant-garde bands, the thing they do best is pop singles. Like Sonic Youth had an incredible gift for hooks. Mm -hmm. And for me, their best songs are their hookiest, their pop songs. And his best movie is Carlos. You know, his five-hour action-adventure movie is so far, for me, so far and away his most realized. I loved that time. I was writing, you know, I was like writing reviews at that time. And I remember seeing it and, and being able to interview all of them after. And I watched oh, all three did? together. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. Did you, I, did you talk to Asayas? Yeah. And like one-on-one, -on -one. I don't remember, it was 10 years ago, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's on there, you can Google clearly. it, like we could look it up. Yeah. yeah, but not a dumb guy, clearly. No, no, not at all. No, um, he's, it's, it's, it's a confusing, he's a confusing one to me, because he's this kind of like commercial, but not commercial, like art, but not art guy. He's just like in a weird between place. It's very strange. I've always seen his career very strange. Yes, it is very strange, it is. Because it's like, go make a big movie already. Just go well, do it because well, you want it, to. Personal Shopper is his idea of a big movie. And I think it's really good. But it's nobody else's idea of a big movie. Yeah, I, I was I actually, I was with him. I went to one of the, there was like an LA premiere of it. And I was there and I ended up hanging out with him and Kristen Stewart a bunch that night. And we that was a cool night, the way that they... Did the, the event was like there were fortune tellers and stuff. It was cool. <laughs> um, well, the, yeah. Cloud to Sils Maria was a movie that opened my eyes to, to her. Because I'd never oh, seen really? any of the blockbusters she's in. I just regard But she's been doing jealous. cool movies. Okay, here's a funny she's thing. She's a truly gifted actress. I mean, a truly first-rate actress, a star, and a really good actress. I had no idea. Yeah, the but Gene Seberg movie is personal bad, shopper, she's so good, good at it. Did you know that she's the daughter of Jodie Foster in Panic Room? 
I found that out much later. Yes. She's How been funny working is a that? long time. Yes. But not been... only that, but that they are these two, you know, for, for like, for, 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 for like, I don't know what, what the word would be, but just like, they are these two gay icons, you know? Right. And they're kind of occupy this very similar position. And, uh, Oh, she has well, short think, hair. Because everybody way. knew that Jodie Foster was a great actress when she was 13. She was in Taxi Driver. But I had never seen anything. I mean, I thought she was good in Zombieland, but I had never seen anything to suggest she was a truly great actress till Clouds of Sales Maria, and she's just fucking amazing. What, you're talking about Kristen Stewart or yes, Kristen Jodie Stewart. Foster? Kristen Stewart. Well, are you saying that Kristen Stewart is above or below Jodie Foster? I'm saying that I'm not sure the analogy holds early on because Jodie Foster was so amazing at Taxi Driver. Oh, Everybody oh, always knew she was a great actress. Oh, no, I'm me, talking as an Kristen adult. Stewart came yeah. to be a great actress, or I recognized yes, her yes, as yes. such later. Yeah, she, as an adult, they hold this yeah. position of these yeah. kinds of like, you know, they, I mean, she models herself in so many ways after Jodie Foster. So it's, it's, and it's just funny that it came it came from like she played her daughter in a movie and they would have never known at that time, you know, but they right. gave her short hair. Like, right. you know, it was like, they, I don't know, maybe they did know. And she could have, she couldn't have been, I don't know. She's probably, she's probably 15 and 14 in the movie, something like that. But they gave her short hair. Like it's not an accident. I would, I would like to, um, uh... See here in it, but I can't bear to sit through that movie again. Panic so, Room? Yeah. I rewatched it this year uh, just to kind of like revisit, you know, Fincher in like a fully formal exercise where I don't get drawn in. But like Fight Club, you can't watch Fight Club as like a Fincher film, you know, even like Social Network and things like that. Like the films that I loved, like The Game. Um, I haven't watched The Game in a long time, but there's films like seven and fight club that came out in that, that streak for Fincher that I think about. And I'm just like, you know, they're, they're above, they're outside. They're no longer just like a David Fincher film to me, you know, they're fight club and seven. They're like these iconic movies. They're yeah, not like yeah. auteur films anymore. Um, I can't tell if they ever were, but panic room and the game are probably like the ways that we can see Fincher in in, a, in isolation, kind of. Uh, but Panic Room, no, it's it's pretty, it's pretty, um, it's a thing to do. It came out, and it's like, it's a thing to do on Friday night. It's a great, it's a great popcorn. Oh, it's playing. Let's go see it. But like, that's it. Is it possible to stay vested in those characters? No, 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 not at all. Yeah, but it's so light, and it's it, which it's isn't like true. Lighter Fight than Club driver. or Seven or Social Network. You stay oh, not at all. In no, all those are those worlds. Characters. Those are worlds. Yeah, yeah no, Panic Room is just. I was wondering. No, the reason I knew it wasn't on that level. I was never even considering that. What I mean is just like, is there anything to it beyond? It's 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 very strange. It's just like he made it in. It's just so. It's light but it's not light in the way that the driver is light. The driver is light in a way where he kind of like, it is the first, like the driver is a singular film, even though it's light. Like there's nothing else like it. No, there's nothing like the driver. Yeah. 
but like panic room is not important. Like panic room is not, no one looks at panic room and is like, Oh, this invented the home invasion thriller. No, like, when panic no room way. is over, you think now, why did they make that movie? Yeah. Yeah. Who do they think is going to go see that movie? And it's not like it, they made it for cheap because he made all those shots where they go through the walls and stuff. And like, it's an expensive movie, but it makes no sense that it exists. But I like that I watched it again because I got to see this whole weird Jodie Foster, Kristen Stewart thing. No, I'm going to have to watch at least part of it. I mean, just watch like the opening. That's it. And you get the whole thing. Okay. She has short hair. The dad is gone. The dad is uh, Patrick Boschow. He is? Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. All right, now I gotta who, uh, who, as I've gone in this rabbit hole of like 1984 movies, by the way, man, he's in so many movies. In the mid 80s, he was in everything. He played like, he played so many like creepy husbands or, you know, behind the scenes gangsters or cuckolded men and like, yeah. Spell right? It's him, name. right? Yeah, spell this B A U C H A U. B A U C H A U. Right? right? Yes, of course. Oh, yeah, and Patrick Bruchot, you know, he's in. Yeah, um, he's in everything. He's in uh, that, that Michael Tolkien film about, um, about the, the Rapture. He's in the know. film The Rapture with. Um, um, hang on, I'll find it here. Um, that Michael Tolkien directed about. Uh, about the rapture and he you know he's he's the epitome of the urbane decadent european right right when you think of an urbane uh, decadent european you think of him that's it i watched this judd nelson movie i don't even know what it was called it like was i watched it a few weeks ago uh where judd nelson is like the pawn in his like weird marital sex games and it's just like it's a weird movie <laughs> The yeah, Patrick, yeah, the movie is The Rapture. Uh -huh. Patrick Bruchot. I'll have to uh, look David Duchovny and Mimi Rogers. Oh my God. Yeah, it's about um, it's about the rapture arriving. And it's just like actually bad and it's got it's written it's written and directed by Michael Tolkien. Who's Michael Tolkien? He wrote the player. Oh, and he also did Escape from Donna yeah, he wrote Escape from Donna I met that guy uh, last year at the Escape to Donna thing. He wrote yeah. Dim, Deep Impact. The play. He wrote The New Age, which I like a lot. And he wrote um, Deep Cover, which is a movie I like a lot also. I think I sat with his assistant at that premiere which at one? Alice Tully Hall, Escape from Donna Right. So this is like his first thing in a while. And I, I just like, I was invited by, uh, by Showtime because I'm like, a major Twin Peaks person. So now I'm like in the, uh, I'm just like in their invite list for things like that now. Um, and it was at Alice Tully Hall and I sat next to it. I think it was, it was either like his assistant or like his assistant's, it was like someone who was close to Michael Tolkien and I didn't really know who Michael Tolkien was, but then they were telling me and I realized his career and um, yeah, I mean, great stuff. Have you seen and The New Age? I've with not, uh, no. Peter Weller and uh, Judy Davis, and he also wrote and directed, and Patrick Bouchot, of course. <laughs> of course. And it's uh, 1994, and a very, very dark parody of the, the New Age beliefs creeping into people's lives in, okay. uh, 
in LA, really dark, witty, um, not perfect, you know. Oh yeah, Adam West is in it. And, wow. Uh, yeah. So it has to be good if Adam West is in it. Samuel L. Jackson is in it, he has a small role. Um, Corbin, Bun uh, Corbin Bur uh, Burnson. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a classic 94 collection. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's good. I don't have the same affinity for 1994 as I do 1984. I'm, I have this weird, <laughs> like, and, and it's, and it's like 1977, 1978 music I'm okay with, but film I tend to not be, uh, it tends to feel dated and of that time, which I don't give a shit about compared to 1980, specifically 1981 to 1986, which I'm just like, I don't care what it is. Give it to me. I want to absorb it. Like I'll, I'll watch that, like that schlocky, I'll watch B movies from between that 1980 and 1986 and I'll absorb a lot of gold from them because I just, there's something about the time that I love to, I love to absorb and it's books, it's music, it's everything. All right. So what are some of the B movies that spoke to you? I mean, like I watched this shitty or I mean, this is, this is a, this is a rabbit hole. This is so many. Um, I, I don't even, this is like, this is like when someone says, Hey, you watch any good movies lately? And I'm like, I literally can't name one because my brain but of is course, like, of course. you know, yes, that uh, I could, but like wild at heart and Mauvais song are in that period. So those are like, right, the, but they ain't B movies. no, no. Um, so I guess what it is, is like all the things. So we were talking about streets of fire and man, I just like, I get so emotional over that kind of romance. Like Michael Paré is so bad. The whole He's, movie is so. Do bad. you remember his energy in the film? Do you remember like how he gets like angry at everything and he like yeah, wants? Yeah. Like well, he's he just, Michael Paré. Yeah, he's so bad and he's so off. Like all of his notes are like. They're, it's like Solo. It's like that movie, like the Disney Ron Howard Solo Star Wars right. movie yeah. where yeah. everyone yeah. is on a different note. And it's like one person <laughs> is at like energy level six. And then like the reverse shot that was shot probably a month later right. is like on energy level nine. And then like all of a sudden there's a master shot where they're like wearing a different outfit practically. And like <laughs> it's like that. And Michael Paré is the star. I don't know if I'm saying it right, but I think it's Paré because he has an yeah, accent Paré. on the E. Yeah. And I mean, he's just like, you know, there'll be these awkward things where like, like when he first meets this, like the one who becomes like his sidekick, she's just, you know, she's drunk and she's, and she's at a bar and she's like down on her luck. But he's like responding to her as if she's this antagonist or something. And he like gets in a fight with her and then he gets in a fight with the bartender. And it's like, he's just being antagonized by nothing, by like someone that he should be sensitive to, like someone who's low and like feeling bad. Yes, but he's, he's playing the Walter Hill's updating of the classic juvenile delinquent from the 50 film with always got a chip on his shoulder. It's just such an awkward chip. It's a heightened it's up like, camp version of that guy. Yeah, it's such a strange chip of like, you know, you're tearing me apart. I get it. You know, you've been torn apart and you're continuously being torn apart, James Dean. But like, 
you know, you're directing your energy just like anywhere random. It's so strange. But even with that, I watch Streets of Fire and I just like, I want it all. I want it. I love it so much. And I love like Diane Lane, who's also terrible in the film. Not terrible. She's just like the wrong note, you know, just the yeah. whole time. Her note is wrong. It's what like about- she's in the wrong era. William Defoe and those rubber overalls. I mean, William Defoe is. Uh, you you use the phrase about the Elliot Chase book. Willem Defoe in Streets of Fire is Godhead. Like <laughs> it's just <laughs> the rubber overalls, the patent leather, whatever the fuck they are. Like the hair, the teeth, the yelling when he says "get him" and stuff. When he yells and he, and he points, it's Willem Defoe is. It's like. Well, we know, we see the lighthouse now. Like, he's operating on a level that is just, you know, like he's he's running on gases that, like, we don't have a classification for. Like, he is just, in that film, it's not the only one. I mean, it's funny. But like, you made me think of Light Sleeper. I was, I, that's so, I was literally about to say, it's funny. It makes me think of Light Sleeper. Inward, not outward. The first that's time he so did crazy. that. I was, Turns that was, it, yeah. <laughs> right there i was like going into it i was like it's so funny that if you take another one from the same time period with a filmmaker that we both think is like is you know so elevated and then uh everything that defoe did in streets of fire this schlock that made me feel so much emotion just inverted in light sleeper and made me feel nothing i don't like light sleeper I have a soft spot for light sleeper. I maybe need to revisit it. And I think like, watching him, watching Devoe tread so, Defoe tread so softly and show somebody so destroyed. Yeah. It, I mean, I don't like the ending of light sleeper, but, uh, I don't remember. cause it's the same ending as American gigolo, which is the ending of pickpocket. Okay. I, I'll rewatch light sleeper. Yeah. Um, I just remember and it being captures like, a certain New Yorkness too, that I think you'll really like. Okay. But it's not Comfort of Strangers, which is like which is so great. Oh my god! Uh, it's it's so on Criterion great. next month. It is mm-hmm. full. Like see, now I'm all offended that I'm not on the commentary track. Oh, it's so but, good. Uh, and you know the book is amazing, and the screenplay is just a straight adaptation of the book. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and that's a movie when you talk about okay, let's pick a movie that's perfectly cast. That movie is perfectly cast. Beyond perfectly cast because we had no, not only was it perfectly cast in the moment, but we had no idea what was going to happen to these four people for the rest of their lives. And holy shit, did it happen. Natasha Richardson, Rupert Everett, Helen Mirren, Christopher Walken, they all be, they all walked in the shoes of their characters. It it was as if they (laughs) walked off into the, into the real world and went and, I mean, you know, rest in peace, like, like, it's very tragic, but, you know, Natasha Richardson, like, her doomed, like, she was left with, with the, the absolutely never going to pick up these pieces, like, right. at the end of that film, and, right. like, that, you know, a few years later, Rupert Everett, too good to be true, too, Well, you the know? brilliant thing about casting him was, I mean, when I first saw it, and missed the point, I said, this dude is not a convincing heterosexual. Hmm. And, and the only answer to that insight is, duh, 
Yeah. That's why too, they cast too beautiful, too this, too everything. Yes, and that's why they world. cast him for yes, for that very reason. That's why he's mm-hmm. cast in that role. Uh, and he's know, great and it's the best thing he ever did. Oh my god, he's so it's and it's the only truly dark thing, although there was a a real B movie called Bee Monkey with yeah. uh, Asia Argento. Do you know yeah. Bee Monkey? Yeah. And Jared Harris. Jeremy Davies. Yeah, and Oh and, Jared uh, Harris, yeah. And uh, he plays a certain, Rupert Everett plays a certain kind of English decadent. And, and there he shows his dark side like he did in uh, Comfort of Strangers. And he's really good in it. That's so, a good movie. It's a good B movie. Comfort of Strangers or B Monkey? No, uh, B Monkey. Oh, I was going to say Comfort of Strangers yeah. is an A++ prestige film. Initial B movie, uh-huh. is, uh, B Monkey. Yes, yes. Is, uh, I'm looking it up now. It's a good. Uh, I forgot who did it, but it's one of the 1988. 90s. Michael Bradford. Okay. Whoever that may be. Oh, My, he made Il Pastino. He made 1984, the, uh, the movie 1984. Oh, he did. And he made uh, Elsa E. Fred, which I don't like, but has its uh, adherence. Yeah, definitely B Monkey was the apex of his oof. No two ways about it. I'd say Streets of Fire and Comfort of Strangers. What year is Comfort of Strangers? 88? Yeah, let me look and see. 90. Okay. It's a little out of my range, but it's a special one. And oh, I just, I didn't know this. I had forgotten it. This is why it's so good. It comes from an Ian, uh, McEwen, Ian McEwen, yeah. Pinter wrote the screenplay. Oh, yeah. Oh, and I just watched Joseph Losey's, uh, one, or I watched two of the Pinters. I was trying to watch the third, and then it expired, so I got to go watch it. Well, but you, you don't know, like Losey the, the way that uh, I you're the great finder. His Penter's, uh, the movie of Penter's play, Betrayal, okay. with Jeremy Iron and Ben Kingsley and an English oh. stage actors that I've never seen since, is so great, but you can't find it anywhere. Okay. So Will if you, you can send find me a, a note, because I, I have my Wi-Fi just on I will, I'll text it to you right now. I'll look now. for it. I mean, I love it's, um, um It's so great. I'll watch anything, Penter. Yeah, me too. But yeah, like Comfort of Strangers and Streets of Fire, I have such an emotional connection to um, the romance to it. Like, I love Venice so much. And this was, I watched it for the first time a few years ago when I was kind of like, you know, just like shifting my life out of like what I was doing before. And I watched it right before I visited Venice for the first time as like an adult. And it's imbued death in Venice and comfort of strangers are really like, I've watched a lot of Venice movies, but those are my two. Those are my there. You know, I got, that was my death. Well, in what Venice. About don't look now. I love it, but it doesn't do, um, it doesn't do for me what death in Venice and comfort of strangers. Is that right? Cause it's the other way for me. I, I always took don't look now as the, I love don't look now. I've never don't. been to Venice, but I took it as the Venice movie. It's tremendous. I think for Don't Look Now is not a Venice movie to me because it is a film school movie to me. It is just like, I learned Don't Look Now so many times that like, I can't, it, like I, it's dead for me kind of. Right. It's, it, it's not dead. It's alive forever, but it's like inside me dormant and right. living through other things. Like I can't watch that movie and enjoy it because I can also recite it. You know, I could tell you every right. shot and right. every technique, but, but that's not to say that it's not inside me because I mean, you've read like my Venice script that I think you have, 
where I clearly like there's a don't look now scene. Like it's very, it's not, it's not like influenced by it's a nod. It's a very direct nod. So I love don't look now. Um, I just like, I kind of never want to watch it again. Um, I would watch it again, like with a, with a, with my kid, you know, but like, I, you know, I don't need it anymore. Uh, same thing. It's, there's like a lot of things like that, but comfort of strangers I can watch and rewatch. I guess, you know, things feel differently. Like when I know that like, I'm one of the only few people who like really care about comfort of strangers, you develop a different attachment to something like streets of fire, like comfort of strangers. Like, I don't know anyone else who gives a fuck about those things. Like you're one of the only people who I could talk to about comfort of strangers at all. And I know you don't give a fuck about streets of fire, like, but, (laughs) but we become curators for the films we really love. We are the curators. Yeah. So I get, I get excited about being able to talk about, you know, like I, I love Schrader and Schrader is a famous person, but like nobody talks about comfort of strangers, which is, Nobody oh. saw Comfort of Strangers. Why? I don't know. It never, it never made it out. And I don't know if you're in the class, but the class I showed Comfort of Strangers to, the, no. the next week there was just tumult. Nobody knew what to make of it. Why? What did they say? Well, but just because it's so incredibly transgressive. Why? Why is it so fucking incredibly transgressive? Okay, it's so I'll give you an example. Yeah. There's a scene where Rupert Everett and so uh, Natasha Richardson are discussing their sexual fantasies. And Rupert Everett's sexual fantasies about what he wants to do to her are just so weird, dislocated, inhuman, alienated, right? That if you're not watching it in a way to recognize that this guy is describing his own um, lack of capacity for intimacy of connection in any way. Natasha Richardson's sexual fantasy is all about how much more she wants him to love her and she's describing it in a sexual way. His, just talk about his alienation. When the class saw it, they were all like, well, how could she be in love with this guy? When he says stupid things like that. And they did not see under to the next level. I mean, that's a very Pinterian gambling. Well, no, it's just someone like in real life who, I don't know. I think it's a two viewing movie. I always thought it was a two viewing movie. Oh. First time I watched it was in chunks, actually. I didn't get, I didn't, I was watching it when I was like moving around and I was watching it 20 minutes at a time, you know, like bits, you know, just getting through it. And then I, I don't know when I can't, you know, I don't know if I could figure out, but like, I don't know when I realized that, oh my God, I love it. Probably like when they fall asleep in the, when they don't make it home, that's probably right. did it for me. That's what like Mauvais song like has the same kind of device. Not, not exactly, but uh, of him. I love, I love, I mean, you know, just the expression of the flaneur kind of situation, but a specific version, a specific part of the flaneur where you are emotionally, you, you, you have a, you have a disparity creating thing happen subtly and you have nowhere to go but the streets. Oh, I know, that's I, interesting. That's what happens in Mauvais Song and Comfort of Strangers. The disparity is created, but they don't really know it or they kind of know it, but unconsciously. And they the, just- The they, disparity between what and what? Comfort of Strangers is not streamable. It's not on Amazon. Maybe it's on Criterion. I don't know. 
But the I might, disparity I might, between, uh, between might, what and what? Uh, the disparity inside the despair so so they they get lost when they have opened their world to um christopher walken so they were resisting and then they let him in by going in and then he tells them the story and he gives the monologue that how many times does he do the monologue yeah three three times (laughs) (laughs) um for all you listeners out there um (laughs) Uh, it opens the film, midpoints the film, and closes the film. It's on the pause. Criterion channel. Oh, it will be, yeah. It, no, it's it already is now. It's good. Yeah, it's good, 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 yeah. Good um, but the, the 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 full thing is coming out like next month in their next you know package whatever. Okay. But uh, but so you know so they go to his cafe and he, uh, so he brings that he you know he gets them uh, he lulls them in. He lures them in right. with this kind of like aloof sincerity and harmlessness. And then when he has their attention, he delivers a gut punch. You know, first of all, he doesn't conversate with them. He he talks. He, he demands everything. He takes everything from them. He overpowers them. He outwills them. He not outwills them. He removes it, it the question of them. He, he, he outwills them to such an extent that their will is no longer a factor. Like they are in this and they will leave when he is, you know, he will finish his story and they will be able to respond when he decides and he will do with them what he, what he decides. They have nothing to do with it. Um, and yeah, and, and, and he not only like any masculinity that Rupert Everett wanted to impose upon the situation is gone, gone. And any, you know, feminine resistance to aggression is no longer a factor on Natasha Richardson's part. She is no longer in a position to submit. She is just open and Rupert Everett is powerless. Um, it's similar to the end. You know, it's basically the ending. It's yeah. Rupert Everett is... Don't give it away. Oh, fine. It's a great ending, yeah. <laughs> um, but open and powerless. And then he gut punches them with his words, which he then, you know, he literally gut punches Rupert Everett shortly after and the next interaction. And he leaves them every single time incomplete he leaves them broken he splits them up inside and splits them from each other and then leaves them to go off on their own and the first time they literally don't make it home they fall asleep in the street McEwen and penter thematic story and also that idea that these characters think they understand their own psychology but they don't Right, and, and when and they run into Christopher Walken, does understand his own psychology. They don't know what they don't know how to deal with it. They, a, and they an walk in the streets after everything in Pentry. and they're just gone. They're just wandering, yeah, because that's what yeah. they were doing. You know, they were they are they were wandering before they were lost. Yes, and they had he, lost their bearings. Yeah. So Mauvais Song does a similar thing with the Juliette Binoche uh, record playing radio scene with 
mm-hmm. um, Denis Levant, and then he has nowhere to go. It, oh, wow, it's funny. You know, it's a gut punch also. Physical gut, he punches himself when he's doing the dance, when he's running in the street. Um, because he, Leo Karras. I got to look him up now too. What? I never saw Move saw. L-E-O-S. It's in my Dropbox. L-E-O-S-C-A-R-A-X. His new film will be at Venice if it happens. It was L-E-O-S. Yeah. So it's, it's a you know pseudonym. But um. All right. So wait, what's the director's name? I'll just send you the link. It's Leo Caraz. It, L-E-O-S space C-A-R-A-X. Did you ever see Lovers on the Bridge or Pola X? Um, yeah, I saw Pola X. Holy Motors. Those are all him. Yeah, I hated Holy Motors with a passion. Yeah. But uh, well, Mauvais Song is my favorite, and uh, and they and they they have Leo Caraz. Sorry, Denny Levant, who's like Leo Caraz is like. Uh, so Mauvais Song is eighty six. Yeah, that's why eighty six. And Michelle Piccoli. It yeah, must oh, be yeah. good if he's in it. It it's good. <laughs> it's it's a it's a it's a um, it's my second favorite film movie. of all time. It's a it's pandemic a, movie. Sort yeah, basically like, but not really. Oh hell, now I have to see it. Okay. I can't believe you've never watched it. I mean, it's my I've second favorite it. film of all time. Okay, now I gotta find it. <laughs> uh, you don't have to find it. I've sent you the link. Okay. It's in my Dropbox. Thank you. Mauvais Song. An yeah. ex-con and the teenage son of a murdered criminal is coerced by two former associates of his father into stealing the antidote to the deadly AIDS-like virus as he yeah, falls for the crime none of this matters. Mistress. This is like not even... A like rival it. gang lurks in the shadows intent on securing the precious serum. It, but like, obviously that's of, just the bones. On none of that is anything. Like I don't even... Like if you asked me to tell you that, like, I w- like to, tell me, to tell you what the movie's about, like none of that would come up. Okay. Because that's like not really what the movie's about. Um, it's like not even really in the movie. That's just, it's kind of like a funny thing to like sucker someone into watching this movie that's really just like expressionist and weird. But that's why like it follows Last Year at Marion Bad. You know, like, like Last Year at Marion Bad is like a mystery about two people who maybe met in the past and is she hiding has she forgotten is she repressing memories you know who's she gonna end up with like that's not what last year in marion bed's about like who cares you know (laughs) but the log line that's what it says you know right the Um, log line yeah yeah but i love i love the you know the the romantic aspect of like Cause that's what I've done in my life. You get torn up inside and, and everything goes into question and you have nowhere to go, but outside, but the street and you want, you know, I'm a city person. So, so the street is different. It's not like I go in the forest, you know, I walk around. Well, that happens. brings us back to what we started talking about. It's exactly right. And you don't have that. If you're in New York now, you would not have that outlet or you wouldn't have had that outlet the last two months or the nature of that outlet is tremendously changed. Yeah. Because to, to go outside is to face a threat now. So the, the, the things that you enabled you to escape being torn up, those avenues are closed. It goes back to us uh, turning it all in. And that's an interesting, it just occurred to me because I was thinking about Defoe in, um, in Light Sleeper, you know, depression is anger turned in. Depression is anger turned against yourself. Okay. And that's what Defoe lives through in Light Sleeper all the way through. That the, the 
the level of his depression is from all the rage he has at himself. And maybe that's part of what's driving everybody to be so much more themselves in the pandemic is that got all this anger and knowingly or unknowingly you start turning it inward and it leads to depression. So how do you make that lead to connection instead of depression? Well, you do what we're doing. And, you know, as, as Forrester said, for God's sakes, connect. You connect one way or another. I'm lucky because I'm working with two different people on Skype like for hours every day. Yeah. So I'm getting some immediate face-to-face time. But I went 38 days, I think, without being face-to-face with anyone in person. And we ain't made for that. No. Not- you have light, good windows at least. Yes, I have a ton of light. And now I can get out of my bike, which is good, but still, it's, uh, I mean, we talked about this. I am, I am by nowhere near as horny for sex as I am for just somebody to hold on to while I'm sleeping. You know, I miss skin more than almost anything throughout this pandemic. And I don't think I'm alone in that. Yeah, I mean, I've talked about, like, I, I don't know what it is. Well, no, I guess I, I do understand, but I don't miss anything. And I've just been full speed ahead. The only thing I'm worried about is, like, how what I'm making fits into the world. Because I want it to. Yeah, I'm, and, I'm, you know, I'm making like a son of a bitch. I'm working hard, but it's not, it isn't um, assuasion, let's say. Uh-huh. The other longings. I guess for me, there comes sort of an order to things where I don't want the other things until, like, I don't want, for example, you know, we talk, or you're talking about companionship, you're talking about sex or, you know, intimacy. And it's like, I don't value that right now because I want it on the terms of my film, my music, all this stuff being, I want that to be, to build my world. And it's not quite yet built my world, at least externally, maybe internally it has, but I want the internal to reflect the external. And until then, I consider any, you know, like most connections to be sort of deficient and off. And like, that's why like, I don't really, that's why for the last chunk of years, like I don't really like date because, and any anyone who I have dated has kind of come about you know, randomly, um, and, and, you know, in a, in a beautiful way, but I'm not like out there looking for anyone because it wouldn't be right because the external that I'd be wandering through is not the one that I want. So like, I, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm in a world that I don't want to exist in looking for someone who exists in it and putting myself in and presenting myself along the terms of that world. And I don't want to present myself along the terms of a world that I don't co-sign. So I don't do it. And the only times that I've ever allowed or, you know, gotten close with someone are when the exceptions happen, you know, or when it like, even despite those things, we somehow figure out how to find the, the right versions. And then, then that's good. And that was like what, the last, the last thing that I had that I have no idea what's going on with it, but that was what that was. You know, it was like somehow in spite of the lack of presentation, we were able to 
to see the rest. But I do no outreach, you know, I don't, uh, yeah. Well, we're, we've, outreach has been obviated. We're not in a. I didn't do it before. Right. Didn't change. This hasn't changed anything for me. I was, I was here already. It's made me lonelier. That's for sure. That's no good. No good. Right, is man, Los Angeles going to open up? Yeah, not not with some restrictions. I think some restaurants are going to open. I'm going to be as cautious upcoming as I was in March. Good. I think there's going to be another wave, so I'm being... I'm big-time caution. That's, like, why I haven't come back yet, because I'm yeah, just like, I'm, yo, there's no win for me to come back. No. Like, I don't gain anything, so I no, might I think as July well be fully be, cautious. July is going to be bad. So, uh, yeah, I'm being very, very cautious. I mean... One thing I really miss is going to a movie. It's the only, it's like, you know, all I, I go want. to movies four days a week, usually three yeah, or four same. days a week yeah. if they're out there and nothing equals sitting in a movie theater. I'm going to make no... a bowl of popcorn today because of this conversation. <laughs> That's what I'm going to, I'm going to make tea and popcorn. That's what I'm going to do with my afternoon. I'm not going to go in the water today. All right. I'm going to watch movie song. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right. This was great. What am I supposed to watch? Light Sleeper? And you, you, did you send me the Pinter Betrayal? I did. Betrayal and Light Sleeper. Were there others? No, I think that was it. Okay. If you think of others, send me. But okay, yeah, give me, I'll, I'll watch those. And I have a few others that, are, uh, that have been floating around. Do you know what I've been watching? It really surprised me. I was just staggering around Amazon and stumbled onto City of Ghosts. No, is it a documentary? No, it's a low-budget, really sweaty noir written and directed by Matt Dillon, starring Dillon, Stellan Sarsgaard, uh, Depardieu, Natasha McElhone, and Rose Byrne. And it's like send mostly me, shot in close-up. Clearly, he shot it for nothing. Yeah. But yeah. I'm really enjoying it, and it's on... Uh, okay. And James Conn is, is as world-weary as it possibly gets. Huh. And, and I watched Capone, it. by the way, that Dillon is Did in. Did you get all the way through it? I did. Um, and? Like, it's great in many ways. Like, uh, you know, it's The Shining. It's like, he's making- Don't tell me anything about it, because if you think it's great, I'll actually sit through it. Watch it. Like, you could watch a half hour if you want. Shining sequence, like, you're good, honestly. Okay. I don't know what I mean by the Shining sequence. Like, it's not, like, it's very clear. Um, Watch through the shining sequence and you have my word that you don't need to watch any further unless you're enjoying yourself. I watched okay. the whole thing. Uh, the ending is just, you know, he didn't really, I think he, he just had a, he just had an idea, but it wasn't an understanding or anything. It was just like, it's a cool concept. It's a cool exploration, but he didn't add it up to anything. So he had to end it with. What's like, the deal with Tom Hardy loving thugs? You know that Cray movie was terrible. I never watched it because I heard yeah, it was terrible. Uh, legend, right? Yeah, legend. Uh, what's his deal with liking thugs? I I just he, assume he you know he, he grew up a certain way and he was he intrigued by these types. Thugs. He probably had. I you want know, to see Villain. Have you have you heard of Villain? This new the movie. We were about it. I emailed you about it. Oh, that's right, you did. Yeah, I might watch that tonight. Um. Let me know because 
I have to, it's difficult for me to watch it because of my region. Um, right. So I have to track it down, but uh, I will if it's worth it. Um, Do you have a, uh, a VPN? VPN? Yeah, but uh, it's tricky. I can't purchase things through the VPN. Right. So I, it's not letting me VOD VPN. So I can stream anything that's like part of the service, but when it's, I buy it, the 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 uh the purchase blocks it for some reason so i was trying to like i would like well that's what saved me from watching the quarry for example i tried to watch it and couldn't it was available nowhere else yeah i'm sorry about that one but no no i had high hopes for it yeah me too i thought putting the two of them back together would have been cool yeah but it turns out you just want to go watch that one scene and take shelter over and over again yeah and that's more than enough Um, all right man yeah this is really fun Good to see you. Thank you so much. Right. Good to see you. Good to catch Good up. Talk. Thanks for having. Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks for. Thanks for being My on pleasure. it. And uh, we'll do it again. Get yes, me posted on uh, Move's song. I will. All right, All dude. Right. Have a good afternoon. Don't be sure. lonely. You no, got no. this. <laughs> <laughs> Love. All right. Peace.